before I begin, I want to commend those of you who are here. I want to commend those of you who assemble each Sunday evening. When you have the people you have on Sunday morning and they don't come back, then of course there's a lack of realization there somewhere. And I know what your aims must be. I know what your yearnings are. And that is to have them all join you on Sunday evenings and more on Wednesday evenings. And it may probably be discouraging to you to come Sunday night and see so many who do not come. But maybe this morning, I don't think I've solved anything, but maybe it will start some people thinking, you encourage that. And as time goes on, let's pray that there will be more and more joining you on Sunday evenings and on Wednesday evenings. But I want to commend those of you who, in spite of that, you're here. You're here to serve the Lord. And you're here for other people to come in and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now for our lesson this evening, when I use this lesson in a meeting, I enjoy sending the title along with titles of other lessons. And they read down and they say, Nothing But Leaves. Well, I want to tell you this is not a sensational title. It's a perfectly scriptural title. It's about a scriptural subject. It is a quotation from the scriptures. And sometimes people will figure it out and they know what I'm going to talk about. Most frequently, though, they start guessing. Nothing but leaves. Adam and leaves. Uh, Adam and leaves. Adam and Eve and fig leaves uh, and other suggestions. But no, that's not what it is. I'm going to take a moment or two to talk about something else before I really get into the text. And I want to give you some examples of religious expression today. And this was prompted because I had a sister in Jesus Christ come to me, and she is active in a homeschooling group, and there are a lot of evangelicals in that group. And she says, Dale, I worry about myself because these ladies say, praise the Lord this, the Lord that, the Lord the other, the Lord told me, the Lord laid it on my heart. And she says, I don't go around saying things like that. Do, do they have something I don't have? Am I missing something? First of all, this expression, the Lord told me. I have a friend who had a friend, and that friend was always saying, the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that. And so my friend said, just what did the Lord say? And so the fellow who goes around all the time saying, the Lord told me, says, what do you mean? And he said, you said the Lord told you. What were the words he used? And he said, well, it was more of a feeling. Ah, <laughs> and that really is what it is. People interpret their feelings as the Lord telling them something. And of course, you and I know this is where the Lord has spoken. This is where he has told us everything he wants us to know. But back to my sister, I'll tell you what I told her in just a moment. But I want to look at some other examples. Do you remember 9-11 and the assemblage of important people in the national cathedral and the impressive service it was there and you see all these important people and their concern is on God by how far we've come in just those few years God is not to be mentioned prayers are not to be done in public religion is to be kept within the four walls of church buildings but at that time in that time of distress and need there was a consciousness of God and the service was impressive those who spoke, those who prayed, the appeals to the Lord, the consciousness of God and our need for God. And then there was the Episcopal Bishop, and her name was Jane Dixon. And uh, 
She was seated up front at the end of the ceremony. She stands up in her resplendent robes, and there are others behind her standing up in resplendent robes and carrying the Episcopal flag, the American flag, and who knows what, all of the flags. And they marched down the aisle, and they marched back, and really impressive looking. But how deep does the faith of that woman go? There had been, at that time, a controversy over here at Akakik, where the local Episcopal congregation objected to the appointment of a practicing homosexual bishop who was married to his mate of the same sex. And because of this, she caused them to forfeit their building, and they were thrown out of that building. And yet, here is all of this expressive religion. Just as in this homeschool group, all of these words of religion and all that sort of talk, and that was her dilemma. And it takes me back to when I was in college. And um, a friend of mine and I were on the way back from Tampa in an old barred car that four guys had bought for $5 each. That's $20. And the steering and tie rod were held together literally with a wire hanger. Uh, you had to get out and take a, a, the battery cable and attach it to something to get the car to start. But anyhow, those were college days then. We didn't have the cars I'm sure kids have today. And we took a shortcut through Silver Springs going back to the college at Temple Terrace. And we stop at a stop sign. There's a Pentecostal building over there. Man, coming from that building was a trumpet that was just expertly played. I mean, this guy could play the trumpet. And a sign out front advertising services the next night. And of course, in those days, college guys would always look for cheap dates. We didn't have a lot of money, so if we could just go and hear this guy play the trumpet, and then we'd go out and get a hamburger afterwards, that'd make a good Friday night date. So. I asked my girlfriend, he asked his girlfriend, and my girlfriend is the girl I eventually married, but I guess forgot to tell her where we were going or the implications of where we were going. So here we're going to this Pentecostal meeting. Now you've got to remember, back in those days, the Pentecostal men really dressed, nice suits, handkerchiefs in their pocket, white shoes, and the women dressed really in a dowdy manner grayish looking very plain no makeup hair bound up on the top of their heads and that is till Tammy Faye what was her name came along and uh, if you've ever seen her on television you remember all the makeup she wore well how she did that she said all these other girls wore makeup she wanted to so badly so she decided one day she would just try it she was going to put, up, put on makeup if nothing bad happened she would decide the Lord told her that was okay so she wore her makeup the Lord didn't do anything about it the day went okay, so she decided that was okay, and it resulted in a, a bit overboard in the wearing of makeup, but there again is this idea of the Lord telling them. But at any rate, when we went to pick up our dates, here comes Marlene out in a red dress, I mean a bright red dress, a little string of pearls, lipstick. Now Marlene didn't wear a lot of makeup, but she wore some makeup, and she was really pretty, but I thought, well, this is going to be a problem going to this Pentecostal church. So, so for some reason or another, they got started earlier. We were late, and we missed the guy with the trumpet. But we caught the end of some of the activities. I mean, there was the speaking in tongues. There was the falling out in the aisle. There was all sorts of activity. I mean, tremendous religious expression. Now, remember, we're, we're talking about Carla and all this religious expression she saw. There's Jane Dixon that... Episcopal bishop and the religious expression we saw there and, and how empty that was. And so at the end of the service, 
the preacher got up and he took note of the fact that they had visitors there this evening. That was us, us four. And he said, would you like to say anything? Well, I was conscience bound to say something if I was given the opportunity. And I wanted to, of course, start off positively and not negatively and admire at least their enthusiasm. But the word I used was a big mistake. I said, I appreciate the spirit I've seen here. Hallelujah, amen, praise the Lord, Holy Spirit, and all this, that, and the other. So I had to kind of work from that. And I went to 1 Corinthians 13 and talked about what the passage talks about, the end of spiritual gifts and when they would end, and that they are not available today. And it took me just a few minutes, and I sat down, and the preacher jumped into the pulpit, and he said, the devil is among us tonight. And I didn't know whether he's talking about me or Marlene her red dress, or maybe he thought we were companions. But at any rate, again, there's all that expressive religion and yet completely contrary to the service you read of Christians having in the New Testament. Yes, they were speaking in tongues, but they were languages that the people had not studied and they had to be interpreted. If they were not interpreted, they were not to be spoken in the assembly and the person could control his tongues. It was not just an automatic thing that happened to him. They were in control of their tongues. But in all of those examples, we have examples of really expressive, showy, emphatic religion. And yet what was behind it? Not the truth of God. Not really the love of God. Well, Dale, you're making quite a judgment there. Well, am I really? When Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we put, when people depart from the commandments of the Lord and they do their own self-expression, they devise their own way of worshiping God, I take it that it is really not, first of all, love for the Lord they have. They might be glad that Jesus came. They might be glad that Jesus died. But they're not glad enough to really listen to him and obey what he said to do. But to Carla, I said, well, Carla, these people who use all of this, the Lord this, the Lord that, hallelujah, praise the Lord, the Lord laid it on my heart. Do they eat the Lord's Supper each first day of the week? And she said, no, they don't. I said, do they believe in baptism for the remission of sins and require people to be baptized as the Bible does? No, no, they don't. When you get together, are the women dressed modestly and decently, or is it in a characteristic, immodest and rather barren way that people dress so often today. She said, oh, oh, no, that's the way. They don't dress modestly. And I said, okay, you're concerned about loving the Lord. You're concerned about their having something you don't have. What you have is a love for the Lord, and you obey his word. They talk about the Lord. There's a lot of showy expression, and yet when you look at their lives and you look at their service, it is not being faithful to Jesus Christ. That has a lot to do with our lesson tonight, which is nothing but leaves. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Mark, the 11th chapter. And we're going to begin in verse 11 in just a moment. So we're turning to Mark, chapter 11, and beginning with verse 11. <clears throat> and he entered into Jerusalem, into the temple, and when he looked around about upon all things that being now eventide, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come out from Bethany, he hungered, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything thereon, and when he came to it, 
he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he answered and said unto it, Now no man eat fruit from thee henceforth and forever. And his disciples heard it. And that's the basis for our lesson tonight. And you may begin to make association with the things that we have been talking about already. And that is that a lot of religious expression today and ostentation today is nothing but leaves. What ought to be there is lacking. I remember reading one author, and it's one of these modernistic authors, uh, who feels free to criticize Jesus Christ and everything taught in the Bible. I don't know why he claims or those people claim to be Christians when they do not believe in the deity of Christ, they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I remember when I was a young man, and all of us have to decide upon our faith. We can be taught it by our parents. If we have parents who taught it to it, God bless us if we had that wonderful opportunity. But eventually we can't take and do just what our parents have said about religion. We have to look at it. And so I said, you know, I hear all of these preachers preaching these things. And I wasn't thinking especially just about gospel preachers. I was thinking in general. Do they really believe all of these things about atonement and sacrifice and vicarious suffering and resurrection? And you know what I found out when I began to study? No. Oh, of course, many did in the more conservative groups. But many in the fancier, larger groups of religion in denominationalism, do, they do not believe those things. And I remember one time someone asked some of those theologians, why then do you use such terms as redemption and atonement? And he said, well, they are words that people identify with. And so we use that and we can get into the hearts by using those terms. But ask, do they believe in the redemptive power of the death of Jesus Christ that actually redeems us and led to the remission of our sins? No, they did not believe that. And yet they were involved in some quite showy religion. But this theologian said, looking at this text, is there anything we can discern or learn from this tempter, temper tantrum of Jesus? Is there any edification in such? Here is a human being sitting in judgment of his creator. In John the first chapter, verse three, it says, all things were created by him, Christ the word. And without him was not anything made that hath been made. There was the pronouncement by God, but the effective worker in bringing to pass everything that is, the effective worker who made everything that exists is the one we know as Jesus Christ. And here's a theologian looking at Jesus and criticizing him for what he calls a temper tantrum. But what we're going to find in this context is that this is a parable in action. It is a demonstrable parable. Jesus is teaching something when you look at the context that is here. There were parables that Jesus taught in words, but here is one that Jesus taught in action when he is out early on this Monday morning and he sees this fig tree and it stands out among all the rest. It's advertising itself. I have fig trees and those trees are like many fig trees around the world. They set the figs before they have the leaves. I can go out in early spring and there are the little figs on there and then the leaves come later. So if there are leaves on that, there should be figs. And so here is this one outstanding fig tree with all of its lush leaves. And Jesus went up to it, and even though it wasn't the season of figs, it was advertising that it had figs. It conveyed the idea that it had figs. But as Jesus looked upon it, 
there was nothing but leaves. So let's go back to our setting. Jesus has come down from Galilee. This is his last trip down to Jerusalem, except for when he shall ascend from the Mount of Olives after his resurrection from the dead. Remember, he passes through Samaria, and the time before when he stopped at Samaria, as you stated this morning, he spent two days there teaching the people and getting a wonderful reception from those Samaritans because of the testimony of the woman at the well. And when Jesus comes back through, they're looking, anticipating that he's going to spend some more time, but they can see that his face was set toward Jerusalem. Jesus has now come to this point in his life. It's time to fulfill that for which he came. He is on his way to die. And so when he gets there, he has passed through Jericho. He has healed blind Bartimaeus. He has done some other miracles. That word is spreading as his fame has certainly spread. Jesus is no longer tamping things down. He's no longer telling people, don't tell anybody. But his fame has spread. And as he comes from toward Jericho, toward Jerusalem, then he comes to the Mount of Olives. There are the people with their clothing and the palm leaves, and they are putting it in his path to make the way easy for the king to enter into Jerusalem and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. That is, Lord, save in the highest. That's on Sunday. The next Saturday and Friday, or Friday and Saturday, he will be in the grave. The next Sunday, he will have arisen from the grave. But on this Sunday, as he goes into the city of Jerusalem and the triumphal entry takes place, he goes into the temple, he looks around and he leaves and he goes back to Bethany and that will be his practice throughout that week until he is betrayed each evening coming into the city and he's not going out to Bethany he was more at home in Bethany among his friends and people who believed in him than he was in his own house I'm not going to discuss it at length but I want to mention this yes it was his house the temple was we need to understand the fullness of the deity of Jesus Christ. Yes, he dwelt here among us as man, tempted in all ways as we are, in a body as we have. He had a physical brain he had to learn to use as a child, the way we have to learn to use a brain. But in Isaiah, the sixth chapter, there's a picture of Jehovah, the picture of the Lord. And his train comes down and it fills the temple. It's just the hem of his garment that fills the temple. And there's great smoke throughout the temple showing God's displeasure with that. And there is Isaiah who sees this and he says, woe is me because of what he has seen. And the Lord touches his lips with the coal to make it clean. And the Lord said, I need somebody to go and preach. And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And then the Lord commissions him to go and Isaiah says, how long? And he said, until the cities lie waste and the people perish. Preach till you close their ears. Preach till you close their eyes. And of course, Jesus quotes that passage. And it shows that, you know, truth can have an impact upon the good heart. The good heart will receive the truth and say, I need to change and will change. Let's hope there were some good hearts who heard some of those comments this morning if those comments were true. But there's another kind of heart that you preach the truth to and it just hardens the heart. It makes it more hard. It stops their ears and it closes their eyes. And that's what God told Isaiah to do. Prove that judgment is ready. When you look at the judgments of God in the Old Testament, and I've gone longer on this point than I intended to, but now that I'm on the point, I'm going to stay on it for just a moment. People, some people, all they can see in the Old Testament are the judgments of God. That God of the Old Testament, I don't like him. Well, I'll tell you, it's the same God of the, God of the New Testament that has saved us. And when God would 
pronounced 400 years, 300 years, 200 years before his judgments came to pass. When he would tell Judah, 150, 175 years before the judgment came to pass, this is going to come. That's the long suffering of God. And all this time, there was the preaching of the prophets, and the people kept closing their eyes, stopping their ears, and, and closing up their hearts to the word that was preached to them. Then judgment came. And God proved in all of that that he is long-suffering. He gives people every chance under the sun to turn from their sins. Now, I said all that to say this. In John, the 12th chapter, John quotes that passage. And he said, this he said of Jesus. If you want to turn over there and take a look at this in verse 36, these things spake Jesus, and he departed, and it was that the Son of Man must be delivered up. He must be lifted up, and thus he will draw men unto himself. These things spake Jesus. They believed not on him. And in verse 39, Isaiah is quoted, and here is the passage. He blinded their eyes and so forth. And then verse 41, these things saith Isaiah because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Next time you read Isaiah, the sixth chapter and the call of Isaiah, in this throne scene, and the smoke coming from the temple, and the hem of the Lord's garment coming down and filling the temple, that's Jesus, my friend. That's what the Holy Spirit says in John, the 12th chapter. So here is Jesus now on Sunday afternoon, after the triumphal entry, and he goes into what should have been his own house. And you know what he found there, and we'll talk about this in just a moment. He found the money, changers. He found those selling sacrifices there. They had turned the house of God into secular purposes for their own convenience. And I suppose you could say, well, that makes sense. They needed sacrifices. They traveled from all over the kingdom. They traveled from all over the Roman Empire, and so it's easy to go right there to the temple and buy their sacrifices. And rather than go and make change because the temple tax has to be paid in the temple specie, it cannot be paid in Roman coins, so they have to, if you've gone to a foreign country, you don't have to, have to change money. So why go to a money changer on the street right there at the temple? So convenient. And that's what Jesus saw in his house. And he left it on Monday. And he went away, he left it on Sunday, and he went away to Bethany. The next morning, it's Monday. And he comes back, and he sees this fig tree advertising, flourishing, boasting. And yet it could not deliver. It did not have what it advertised it had. It was nothing but leaves. And after that, Jesus went into Jerusalem, and you know what he did? He cleansed the temple. He turned over the tables of the money changers and the cages of the animals. And he drove all of them out of his house. And he said, my house is to be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. Early on his ministry, three years earlier, he had cleansed the temple then too. And he said, it should have been a house of prayer. You made my house a house of merchandise. And so that teaches us something about the church that we studied about this morning. You look at churches in the world today and all the secular things that they're involved in. All the things of this world, all the material things that they're involved in. We are God's house made of living stones. 
the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, the house of the living God. We exist for a spiritual purpose. We live in a secular world. We have secular affairs. But the church of Jesus Christ being the house of God should not be involving itself in all sorts of secular affairs. It should be a house of prayer, period. Just as the house of God in Jerusalem should have been, but was not, and the people had perverted that. While we're here... Um, in Mark 11 chapter, it's interesting on that line to look at Mark 11 verse 16. And it said uh, concerning the temple, and he would not suffer that any man should carry a vessel to the temple. If you look at a map of the city of Jerusalem, the temple mount, Mount Moriah, took up almost a third of one side of the city. And if you were on the north side and you wanted to deliver a package on the other side, you were in a business and you need to get something over there, it was the easiest thing to do, the convenient thing to do, cut right through the temple. But Jesus said, no, you don't do that. You don't use my house for human convenience. You don't bring down the level and the significance of my house. My house is holy. It is more significant than that. Do not involve it in that which is temporal. And that's a lesson for us today, and we need to understand what we are as the house of God, and we need to engage the church of God in that which is spiritual, that which is uplifting, and that which glorifies God, and leave the secular things out in the secular world. So that's what Jesus saw, and so he left after cleansing the temple, and he went back to Bethany, because as he saw in the temple there, there was nothing but leaves. When they went back that evening after he cleansed the temple, Peter said, when he saw now the fig tree withered to the roots, and he said, look what has happened to this tree that you have cursed. Now Jesus didn't stand back and hurl profanities at that. The curse was just a judgment. No man shall eat figs of you for any more. That was the curse. Now then, if all of this is a parable and we see Jesus in Jerusalem, we see him in the temple, and we see all the religiosity that is there, perhaps it would do well to take a look at the things that are taking place there, though no lesson is stated in the context. We have seen that the house of God, the temple was to be a house of prayer. They had made it a thing of convenience. They had brought the money changers in. They had brought the sellers of sacrifices in, and Jesus cleansed his house of all of that. So what he saw was just nothing but leaves. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he saw a city that was waiting for destruction. And he mentions that, and he told them that. A city awaiting destruction. He longed to see a city of peace. He said of the temple, I wanted you to have peace. He said of the city, I wanted you to have peace. That's what Jesus hungered to see. He hungered to see righteousness and spirituality in his house, and it was not there. He longed to see in Jerusalem its name meaning city of peace. And it was not a city of peace. It was a city under the condemnation of God and it was going to be judged. It advertised itself as the holy city and here is the house of God. And here are all of our ceremonies and here are all of these flourishing things of our religiosity. But Jesus looked at it and there was nothing but leaves. But remember in the text it says, for it was not the season of figs. So as we look at this city, is there anything there in all of this 
that hypocritically advertises what it could not deliver because it was not the season yet. Remember the law? In John the fifth chapter, verses 39 through 40, Jesus said to the Jews who would reject him and go back and try to put their faith in the Old Testament and be saved by that. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have salvation. But these are they which testify of me. These that testify of me, you reject me. And you think you can be saved simply by keeping those laws. It's not the season for salvation. It's not the season for the remission of sins. It's not the season for the establishment of the kingdom of God. But it is coming, Jesus was saying. And it's just like that fig tree. It had no figs because it was not the season. Judaism, the law, could not offer salvation. It was not the season of salvation. Jesus was bringing that. And so there's that comparison then to that fig tree that was there in Galatians, the third chapter, verses 10 through 11. It mentions what would be necessary to be justified by the law, and that is that you must keep every fact, every point, every commandment of the law. Do you know, theoretically, people say, can a man be saved by his works? Theoretically, yes. But no man ever has, and no man ever will. And the conclusion of the Apostle Paul in that text is, therefore we are justified by faith. You fail to save yourselves. The moment you sin, salvation by, and justification, just, justification by works is out the window. And we have to, having failed now in ourselves, remove our confidence from ourselves and put our faith in Jesus Christ, which is God's answer. And that's what the Bible means when it says we're not saved by works. It doesn't mean there isn't anything to do. It just says your works didn't save you. In the midst of your works, however many good works there are, there is sin there, and that failed you. Now, God's answer is Jesus Christ. And so when you just had the law, which pointed out their sins, the law never justified anybody. No one was ever saved by the law. The only thing that saved people in the Old Testament, I had a young lady one time in class ask me, about people in the Old Testament and how were they saved seeing the gospel was not in effect yet. Most of the times when you give me a real puzzling question, give me two weeks, I can come up with a pretty good answer. But that day, I had it immediately. I said, everybody, when you look at Hebrews, the 11th chapter, under the Old Testament, who was saved was saved by faith. It wasn't perfectly keeping the law. But because they had faith in God, they did the things of the law if they did them imperfectly. And they sanctified themselves under the Lord and they served him and it was their faith. And that's the same way it is under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even after a Christian has obeyed or a person has obeyed the gospel and become a Christian, he is not perfect. John points out the fact that we will still sin, but we must walk in. We cannot walk in sin and claim we are in the light. We must walk in the light. But in doing that, the blood of Jesus Christ continues to cleanse us from all sin. We're saved by our faith in Christ, shown in our dedication and our sanctification to the Lord, expressed in our obedience to the things we can read in his word, and the pattern that he has there for us. And when we depart from that, we're not showing faith in him. And we can become like Jerusalem and like the temple was and become nothing but leaves. Well, let's go back to our religious expressionism. It is not wrong to be joyful in one's faith. After all, you look at the triumphal entry and you see those who did believe and people have come from all over the land getting there for the Passover. And there were people there who did believe in Christ and they cried out in their joy, Hosanna. And the Jewish leaders said, you must forget. I mean, you must stop these people. And Jesus said, if they stop, the stones will cry out. But the point I'm making is there was joy 
on that occasion. And it is not wrong while we talk about over-exuberance or over-ostentation or over-showiness in religion where there is nothing beneath it. It is not wrong for our religion to be seen or our joy to be seen. The joy of those people was there as they cried out, Hosanna in the highest. It is not wrong to have sincere sorrow. In Luke, the 23rd chapter, verse 27, as Jesus walks through the streets of Jerusalem bearing his cross, there were the multitudes who had come from Galilee, and especially mentions the women who had been so faithful to him there and even supported him out of their means, who lamented him. There were tears of sorrow. It is not wrong to see those in sin or to see that which is unjust, that which is sinful, and have sorrow for that. It's not wrong to be joyful. It's not wrong to be sorrowful. It's not wrong to use expressive language. One of the admirable characters of the Old Testament is Boaz in the book of Ruth. And when he goes out into his fields, he said to his workers, The Lord be with you. And his workers answered him and said, The Lord bless you. So it is not wrong to say that. Do you know, when I was a child, you know, back when we had to fight dinosaurs on the way to school. Um, I rarely heard Christians say, God bless you. And the reason was, is that they were rebelling against this kind of overexpressionism where there was expression but no faith beneath it. And all the Pentecostals all the time.